0: I know a lot of us have different names for what we call our grandparents. For me, on my mom's side, it was granny and granddad. And then on my dad's side, it was, uh, it was uh, nanny and papa. Always in that order, of course. And so my nanny, I'm so grateful for my nanny. I don't know if you had this. I have a feeling you did. We probably, none of us would be here if we didn't have some praying grandmoms. Can I get an amen? Thank the Lord for praying grandmothers. And for those of you that are praying grandmothers, keep praying, because it makes a difference. You're, you're the only reason why some of us knuckleheads ever find Jesus, amen? Am I being too real? That's just real. So my nanny was that. She was always praying. Interesting enough, my, my papa never went to church with her. She always went alone and took the family, her kids, and then her, her son, my dad, he never went to church either. Once he got of age, he was out of there. And so it's just a miracle that she prayed so many of us in the family into faith and into Jesus. Now, I remember going and uh, her would, she would take me and I would show up, but I was a little disoriented because I wasn't a church kid, so it always felt a little bit awkward being there. And, and it was just an odd place, but I enjoyed it much of what I learned about the Bible in those early formative years of my life came in the form of flannel graphs. See behind me here? I'm telling you, I learned more about... See, now, this was before VeggieTales came out. Now, if VeggieTales had been on the scene, I would have been a Bible scholar by the time I got into high school, right? I remember one time we were watching VeggieTales with Faith because when our youngest daughter, her prime time was VeggieTales prime time, which meant we watched every VeggieTale, every made in that era. And I remember Annette saying, there are things I'm learning about the Bible I didn't know from VeggieTales. And I'm like, well, you know, Bob the tomato, it doesn't always work out exactly the same. But anyway, we had a good time with that. So much of what we've learned has been through cartoons or been through a flannel or flannel graph, a board. And, and what happens is, there's a good part of that, and that is we learn the Bible stories. We, we learn the basic stories. That's the good side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that we keep them relegated in our minds and hearts and mentality to stories. And if we're not careful, when a nostalgic season like Easter or Christmas rolls around, we really go all story on it. And we forget That the characters in the Scripture were people just like you and me. Now, they may have been from the East. It was a different time, different culture. But humankind hasn't changed since the beginning. Human nature hasn't changed. So the way we respond, our mentalities, our emotions, our worldviews, our paradigms, there's a lot more similarity than there are differences, even though we may be from different places and different times. And so I remember it was a big deal for me as a new Christian. And again, coming into faith at the end of my high school, so my senior year in high school, and suddenly being engaged with this over, this daunting book called the Bible. And I began to read it for myself. It took me a while to make the switch from Bible characters on a flannel graph to these are real people just like me. And here's what I've found: is now 35 years into what I do here as a pastor, is that a lot of people never make the switch. In fact, in your mind, it's easy to revert to cartoon characters and little flannel characters that were used to illustrate. And so, what I want to do over the next three weeks is we're going to do a series. We're calling it "Through Their Eyes." We're going to take some of the some of the characters. In fact, I even changed the way I said it. So let me just say this. Instead of saying characters in the story, I'm going to say individuals in the account. Because these are accounts of real things that happen to real people. So I want you to shift gears with me. And it'll be a little work for you, especially around Christmas, the Christmas event, because we do tend to really go all Frosty the Snowman. Come on, somebody. I'm preaching. We tend to go Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Come on now. So we tend to go that way during these times of year. I want to invite you, enjoy those at home, absolutely. Enjoy, watch, of course, my favorite Jim Carrey's version of The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Come on, somebody. I'm really, I'm under the anointing now. So, um, so enjoy those and, and laugh and smile and watch. And then, and then watch your 700 Hallmark Christmas movies. I can tell you how everyone's going to end. But anyway... <laughs> I won't do a spoiler issue here. I'm good. You're safe with me. Um, Anyway, so I'm going to resist going there. So here's the thing. We have have events. We have real events that happened with real people. And so we're going to look through their eyes and try to enter into a little bit of what was going on in their lives so that as we approach the time of year that we celebrate the birth of Jesus, which, by the way, historically... Probably is not the exact time, so don't get all bent out of shape about that. But as we celebrate, we choose a time of year to celebrate this and heighten this in our culture. And it is really the one time of year that people push pause a little bit on life. You call it happy holidays. You can do whatever you want with it. But at the end of the day, Jesus is the reason for the season, no matter what we try to turn it into. So if you would... Enter in with me. So I want to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us do that. So pray with me. Father, as we engage the wonder of Christmas, really through their eyes, through real people, not characters in a story, but people in lives, people on a journey just like us. Father, would you open our eyes that we may see, our ears, that we may hear, our hearts that we may know truth, and that we may see what they see, feel what they felt, and somehow get more understanding of this beautiful book called the Bible. And that these scriptures would come alive to us in real time, not just as pages of history. So I'm asking as a favor, would you lead us and guide us into all truth? In Jesus' name, everyone said... All right, we're going to look at a man named Zechariah. You may know a little bit about the story version of it, but I want to talk to you a little bit more about the reality of it. And we're going to take, just for those of you who are interested in this at all, we're going to take an expository approach to this, where we're going to take it line by line and go through the Scriptures, as opposed to being very topical in nature. And so, verse 1, if you would go with me to Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1, tell you a little bit about Luke. Luke's one of my favorite writers in the New Testament. Because he wrote the majority of the New Testament. Two-thirds of the New Testament was written by good Dr. Luke. By the way, he's a doctor. He's a physician. And I like that because he probably, and we know this from his writings, by the way, he wrote the book of Acts as well as the book of Luke. And Acts could be actually called Luke 2. The way one dovetails into the other. In fact, if you're ever interested in being a Bible nerd like me, You can read the end, the last few verses of Luke, and then have your Bible open to the first verses of Acts, and you'll see how they dovetail together perfectly because it's the same author, the same writer. So Luke wrote Acts, and what I like about Luke is that that he is a detail person. He would be a high C on the disc test. He's that guy who is going to get down in the weeds on everything, and that's why I enjoy reading his gospel and of course, the, the accounts in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, I like it because it's called the Acts of the Apostles. It's what they did. So it's not just a historical account of, of uh, things that happened, but it's actually what they did and how they lived their lives. And you can really enter into the people of the story. So in Luke 1, I hope you're there now, listen to this as we go down the road, and Luke gives us some detail from a physician's perspective. Now, Dr. Pete, I did make a comment in the first service. No offense, my brother. I said they probably couldn't read what he wrote, but at least it was detailed, right? So uh, no offense here, my brother. All right. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative or a story or an account of the things that have been accomplished among us, he's talking about he's talking about the other gospel writers. Verse two, just as those whom From the beginning, our eyewitnesses and ministers, or servants, of the word, the message, have delivered them to us. Now, understand that phrase, ministers of the word, means those who served the very message. What's the message? It's the gospel. So they're servants or ministers of the word, of the gospel. Now, verse 3, it says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely. I love the New Living Translation on this, if you have it. It actually says, he investigated he says, I've investigated these things closely. He's, why? Because he's the good doctor. He's going to get into the details. He's going to get down in the weeds with it. It says, seem good to me also, having followed all things closely, having investigated these things for some time past, to write an orderly account. Sounds like a doctor. To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Interesting. I don't know if you've ever wondered who Theophilus is, but I'll tell you who who he's not, Theophilus is more than likely not an individual. In fact, this is written to, and if you actually take the word Theophilus, break it down into the Koine Greek, Theos, meaning God, and and the back part of that, Theophilus, is actually a derivative from the Greek word phileo, which is one of the words for love. You have agape, phileo, eros, there's various forms of the word in Greek for love, well, so what it literally is saying, and I'll read it like it says, like it's translated accurately, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent lovers of God. Isn't that great? He's saying lovers of God. This goes out to everybody who loves God. Followers of Jesus, lovers of God. So more than likely, he used that as a pseudonym or, or, or just as a, as a moniker to represent all of those who love God. Verse 4 And he says this that you may have certainty, I love that, concerning the things you have been taught. Now all those underlines and italics that you're seeing on the screen are things that I put in there to emphasize and to bring out. Because I want you to know that may not look like that in your Bible. But it helps me, as we talk about this, focus on things that are important. So listen to this. I love in verse 4 that you may have certainty. Last week we wrapped up our awestruck series, 13 weeks talking about the miracles of Jesus. And, and how that applies to our own lives of being open to the miracle and willing to be a part of a miracle. Now here's the thing, just because we stopped the series Awestruck and landed the plane on 13 weeks, doesn't mean we stop talking about the supernatural nature of the kingdom of God and the miraculous MO of God into our lives as a reminder Those who authored the Bible, those who wrote the Scriptures, Luke being one of them, understood the value and the importance and the primacy that there is another world at work. That while we have what we can see, touch, feel, hear right in front of us, they lived with a worldview that there was another world that was more real than the world in which we live, and that is the kingdom of God. They understood there's an unseen realm at work. Michael Heiser has a great book on it, if you're interested in this kind of thing, called Supernatural. He also has written a book on angels that I can't wait to dive into. So, great scholarly works on this very topic. But I want you to understand as we move through this, the writers, Luke himself, understood the primacy of an unseen world at work. So as we're trafficking through these accounts, not just stories on a flannel graph. We're talking about real people encountering another world, another realm at work. And by the way, most of the known world believes that too, much more so than us Westerners here in America. So that's just an interesting point that I hope will help you as we read. He says this, he says that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. In Austruck, we talked about what it means last week to be a believing believer. In other words, not just a believer who checks the box because you went to church or who has your you version. Bible app out and you're checking and mashing the little, you know, putting the check marks in and getting your little badges and whatnot. I'm talking in terms of a believing believer, one who is persuaded. The word for believe is the word pistuo in the Greek, and it literally means to be persuaded. And so my question for you is, the same as last week is, are you persuaded? Are you a persuaded believer? Are you where you are and that you're sure of what you Believe. Verse 4 that you may have certainty, that you may be persuaded concerning the things you've been taught. Luke's desire was to bring an orderly account so that there would be belief. You know what? That was John's conclusion as well in the Gospel of John, so that they would believe. The Gospel writers are saying, This is what happened, and we're giving you an account so that you may be persuaded. Are you persuaded, brother and sister? Are you persuaded? But Jesus is who He says He is. And if that's the truth, and if that's the case, then our responsibility is to adjust our lives to Him, not Him as an addendum to our lives. Amen? He's first, and that means we follow. Amen? Verse 5, In the days of Herod... So now he starts the account. That was an intro. In the days of Herod, king of Judea... Remember Herod the Great? He was a conqueror. But he had been given rule over all of Judea. There was a priest named Zechariah. All right, here's the first person in our story that we're going to call attention to. And that's whose eyes we want to see these events. He was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. So Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God. Now the scripture gives us a description of their nature. Who they were and what they were about. He was a priest... And she was a very proud, I'm sure, proud wife. And we'll see that in a moment. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. First of all, cue victory music. Because that's amazing. They were upright before the Lord and they adhered to the law. Now here's the thing. Again, if you're looking at a two-sided coin... This was before Jesus had come. This is before what Hebrews calls a new and better covenant. They were actually upright before God under an old covenant. That means they were on. They were spot on, holy before God. But Here's the beauty of it as I tumble off the steps. I was, one day, it's all, it's all right. You'll catch me, right, Marcus? All right, you got me. You got my back. Listen to this the thing the things that they had to do to maintain a level of righteousness for God or with God would make your head spin over 613 laws that they had to keep without flaw they had to keep and not miss one and it was rigorous and it was it was torturous and it was difficult and really even though they were as holy as they could be before God it was impossible to keep in fact The Scripture tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that the law was actually given to us to point us to Christ because we need a Messiah because we can't live up to it. So the fact that they were even able to stand up is amazing before God. The word righteous, by the way, literally means to stand upright in the presence of God. In other words, if you're a righteous individual, that doesn't mean, dude, you're so righteous, you're so awesome. That's just a, we've slang that to pieces. What it literally means is, you're able to come in before a holy God, who's an all-consuming fire, and stand before Him without fear of being consumed. That's righteous. You stand up, as opposed to cowering in fear. You ever know people who approach God that way? Well, I have the fear of the Lord. I'm sorry, you don't understand the definition of the fear of the Lord. You have fear, but it's not the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord means I understand His, His reverence and awe. Where if under any other circumstance, I would come before Him like this, but because He tells me to approach His with boldness and confidence that I've been made clean and raised up and seated in Christ in heavenly places far above all principality power might and dominion that's Ephesians 2 and 1 I can literally come before him and stand upright not proud complete humility knowing it's only because of Jesus that I can stand before him and listen to this on my worst day Why? Because the Scripture says we are now under a new and better covenant. It's a new covenant that is ours. And I'm telling you, I'm like Jacob at the River Jabbok, where I'm like, let me put it in our vernacular. Well, some of our vernacular. I'm like Carol Burnett hanging on to Harvey Korman. You're not getting away from me. You will not get away from me. I will not let you go. And I come in because of that new covenant. I grab hold of it and say... This is mine, and because of that, I can stand before God just like this. No fear, no shame on my worst day. On the day that I pulled the biggest piece of stupid in my life, I can stand before Him free, clear. You say, that is not fair. No, let me tell you what that is. That's God. That's a good Father. A good Father. And that's us. In Christ. And yet, they were able to stand up because they were observing all these laborious commands. Isn't it beautiful to be free in Jesus and not have to keep up with every command, every law? Some of us still try. We still try. So look what happens. They're walking blamelessly in all the commandments. So they're in good standing. And look at this, verse 7 but they had no child. We learned on Wednesday night that the conjunction there for and, for for "but is also the same word, and actually more often translated "and. So you could literally read that, remembering that in the Greek language there is no punctuation, right? So it says this. He ends that sentence. Uh, he was chosen, oh, I'm sorry. Walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, and they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So while things look good on one level, here's the human place. This is where we come off of the pages of the Bible, and we realize this was a woman who couldn't have a child that she wanted, and it was a reproach to her life. And I've known many through the years who, even in their own lives, had a difficult time. Conceiving a child. I just think about Amanda and others and we've prayed with and stood with through difficult times because it was so deep and so innate in them to have a child and they couldn't. I know the pain and the torment that brought. Can we just stop for a minute and realize that Elizabeth is a real person just like us? Who, while she's proud of her husband, he's going to represent. He's he's a priest and, and... Some great favors about to come his way, and yet she has this. Doing everything faithfully and yet still not having the one thing she really wants. Does that sound like you? Doing what you can, being as faithful as you can, and yet there's something still yet to be fulfilled. Something yet that seems like it's been taken away, or maybe even the dangling, the proverbial dangling carrot of your life. They had no child because Elizabeth Elizabeth was barren, which again was a reproach in their their culture. In fact, in their culture it was because there must be sin. There must be something wrong with you that God would not favor you with the birth of a child. Something's wrong and so she would have been looked at that way. She would have been looked at and scorned and perhaps even ignored in their social circles. Oh, you you think they were primitive? Same scenario, same human nature. Same social dynamics in that sense. Listen to this. Verse 8. Now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. He was actually chosen to go into the most holy place and to be before God and atone for the sins of the people. This was a massive... In fact, for that lot to fall to you, that would represent the favor of God upon your life. And how proud, even though Elizabeth felt bad about what she couldn't have, she was so proud of her man. She's like, that's my husband. He's about to step into the holiest place on the planet and represent on our behalf, he's going to stand before God, offer incense, and the sins of the people will be atoned for, for the whole year. That's my man. He just got chosen. How proud she must have been of him, even in the midst of her loss. And listen to this. So he's chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. They were gathered together, praying and seeking God, saying, Lord, forgive us. Lord, we repent. Weeping, gnashing of teeth. We repent. And as the priest goes in, as Zechariah goes in, the legend has it, the rumor has it, and some say this, they actually did this. They would tie a rope around the ankle of the priest as they went into the Holy of Holies. Remember, no one could go with them, lest they collapse and die from the fire of God. In case they were not properly consecrated in case they missed something in preparation. There was such a fear and terror of God that they feared that if He drops dead in there, no one can go in there and get Him. They would literally put a rope around and they would would all be around watching the rope snake its way under there and into the temple while He was offering incense. And they would stay outside and pray and weep and bob and go and just... Oh, after God, because they needed their sins to be forgiven. And that's the scene that we have right here. The whole multitude of people are praying, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. We've got to be careful that we don't put that one on the flannelgram with, uh, with the big, or the phonograph, with, with a, a halo and huge wings and, and pixie dust. Mm. Angels don't have wings. I'm sorry to bust that bubble for you. In fact, I'm not even going to go there lest you crucify me right now. Lest I blow every mentality we have, but here's what the word means. It's the word on and it literally means messenger. When God needed to get a word direct to a human being, He sent a messenger. Now, we've morphed angels into all kinds of forms and pretty fat little cherub babies and all kinds of stuff. We've, we've done a lot of that to that, but here's what it really was. An angel was in human form when they showed up. And this angel showed up, and you're going to see in just a minute just the rank of this particular angel. Look at it here. And there appeared to him a messenger of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. First of all, he's supposed to be in there by himself with a rope around him just in case he drops dead And now a man, the form of a man appears supernaturally. Remember, we're all struck here. We understand there's another thing going on and God gets a direct message. Another caveat here, this is very important, is that they had been 400 years in silence. No prophets, no speaking, no miracles. It had just been quiet. It is though heaven had gone silent. Ever been listening to the radio? And then it goes into dead air? That had happened for 400 years. Heaven went into radio silence. And all of a sudden, the silence is broken with an angel, a messenger standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Now put yourself in Zechariah's place. You're excited. You're fearful, but you're excited because it's your turn. You finally got chosen. You're inside. You know the whole nation's out there praying and excited about you. You couldn't help but be proud. You can't help but be excited. You can't help but be flattered. You can't help but feel really good about yourself in that moment. And you walk in there, and all you've been trained from the time you were a child, because you were of that tribe, you were marked from the beginning to be a priest. You've been trained for this moment. And you walk in, and somebody has the audacity to be in there, standing there, when you're there. He, I can't even imagine what was going through his mind in that point. But everything he'd known to be true about his role in life just got messed up because a dude is standing there by the altar of incense. Think about it. This is a priest. This is a holy moment. This is one of the most important moments of the year for the nation of Israel. And it's getting fouled up by a guy standing there. And look what happens. And Zechariah was troubled. I love the way the Scripture minimizes fear, terror, horror, shock and awe. You can add all those words in there because it's what it means. And Zechariah was terrified, disturbed, broken up when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. So he was afraid. He realized something otherworldly is going on. And now I'm not on a flannel graph this is real. If I could say anything to you this morning it would be this. This is real. This is real. This isn't a story. This isn't out of a story book. The Bible is not fairy tales. This is real. Real people, real places, real scenarios. This is real. And he's afraid. Verse 13, But the angel, the messenger, said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. But he has come to deliver a message. Your, your faithfulness, your prayer has been heard. We don't know how long this couple must have prayed, but they were up in age, they probably prayed all through their young marriage, all through their lives, They probably got to a point where they just gave up. We're too old now. We're past childbearing age. But apparently they had been praying and praying and praying. And the messenger says, Your prayer has been heard and your wife will bear a son. And you will call his name John. What we know about John is that he became the forerunner of Jesus. He was the one who cleared the path. He was the one that was preparing a way for Messiah, for the redemption of all mankind, for the reconnect between God and man, where man has fallen so bad that the whole earth is in turmoil, now the reconnect after 400 years of silence is coming, and John has been chosen from the womb, from before birth to be the one, to come as that voice of one calling and crying out in the wilderness. He says, you will call his name John. By the way, John was not a Southern Baptist, just to, just to help you out with that. That's my background. We were very proud that he was John the Baptist, John the Southern Baptist. But let me just say something. He's a baptizer. That's really what that means. So when we hear that, just don't default, okay? Just, just think well, okay? Think well with us. So listen to this. He says, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So a miracle has just been announced by a, an angel, a messenger of God. And it says this, For he will be great. It's talking about John. He will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. Can't live in Fredericksburg. But anyway, <laughs> must not drink wine or strong drink. And, and all that was was an allusion to the potential of being. He didn't take a Nazarite vow, but it was like the, the life of an ascetic or a Nazarite. In other words, they were very, they were so pure before God, they wouldn't touch anything. And so he would live a very pure life. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Is that not amazing? Filled with the Holy Spirit within his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That's He came preaching a message of baptism of repentance. Verse 17. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Destiny was just declared over a child. There's an end game here. In other words, this life is not just being born because. This life is being knit together, designed and created with a purpose. The nature of how God works, you look at Psalm 133, you look at Psalm 138, the nature of how God works is that there is a destiny upon every life that is born. There are no such things as accidents from God's perspective. There may be various reasons how it came about, but at the end of the day, there is destiny on every person born. There is a reason why God breathed life into you. And a reason why you made it through the most violent thing on the planet, and that's the birth of a child. There's a reason why you survived that. It's because God has a purpose for your life. I was in Manila in the Philippines, 2005, and Annette and I were there. And we were in a coliseum of 20,000 young people. And it was the church called Victory. Uh, over 60,000 in on any given window, uh, weekend right now. We were there because they could only fit 20,000 in the largest venue in Manila where they had the Thrilla from Manila back in the day. It was that venue. 20,000 young people, students, and church members. And the pastor stood and said, I want every young person here who believes that God has called them into politics and government to stand to your feet. We want to pray for you. The sound that came out of hundreds, if not thousands of young people standing to their feet was a roar in that place. People stood up everywhere. And I'm, thought, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, Kyle, they must, not have heard the, they must have misunderstood. You're going, Amen. <laughs> They, must, they feel called to change their nation through politics and government. and I'm literally and that you remember this I don't know if it's a1,000. I don't know there were too many. It was, they were all around us, because they believed that God had called them to make a difference in their nation, ultimately, the world. And they saw a vehicle for doing that was to be raised up and trained up in politics and government so they could serve their nation and bring the kingdom, bring Jesus into into the highest seats of government in that nation. If you know anything about the government of, of the Philippines, it is mostly dominated by Christians. And a lot of them have come out of that culture of victory church that have been trained and taught and told from the very beginning, you're going to be a world changer. You're going to be a culture shaper. You're going to be a difference maker. Can you grab hold of that for just a second? What would happen if we begin to speak that over our kids? What if, that, what if we begin to convince them at 10, 11, 12? Not 21, but 12. Flip the Flip the letters. Flip the numbers, not 21, 12, and teach them that they have destiny on their lives. They have greatness on their lives. They're going to make a difference. God's going to use them. And perhaps even speaking a word like this over our children, how different would they come up? How different would they be if they believed they were called to make a difference? Verse twenty. 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife has advanced in years. Note to self, never argue with an archangel. You'll see why. Verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Right there is enough. Drop the mic, Gabriel. Exit stage left. I mean, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Zachariah speaks up. Gabriel one-ups him, pulls rank, and says, look, I am the one... Listen to this. I'm the one who stands in the presence of God. Two archangels, Michael and Gabriel. Verse 20, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. Punishment? No, he just says it's a sign. It's a sign to remind you of the consequences of unbelief. I don't see that as punitive. I see it as a sign to all of us. We're still reading about it going, that's a sign. The power and the destructive force of unbelief. He says this, these words, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, it's going to happen. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. They're watching that rope going, I don't see any movement here. Should Should we tug? Should we see? And then can you imagine they're out there with their eyewatches going, he's been in there a really long time. This, this may not be good. Can you imagine them wondering? I mean, you can only pray so long before you get tired and they're all standing around going, wow, he's been in there a really long time. Either we had a really bad year and he had a lot to atone for or something's happened. Can you imagine them going, should we pull on the rope? Should we, should we pull? Should we tug? Should we pull him out? And when he came out, And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. Remember, he couldn't speak. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remaining mute. I mean, he's trying to talk to them. He's trying to communicate the best he can. And he kept making signs. And look, it says in verse 23, now we fast forward a little bit. And when his time of service was ended, in other words, his official close, he went back to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. All these years, all this time, all this age, he comes home from doing what she thought was going to be the most amazing thing, and he can't even speak. He's overwrought, he's overwhelmed, and she conceives. And interesting enough, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. We'll end with that verse But let me remind you here in verse 24. After she conceived, she kept herself hidden for five months. This is another place where the humanity comes out in this story, this account. The reason I think she hid herself, and theologians and commentators won't go there. They'll say, it's unclear. But here's why I think she hid herself. We walked with a lot of ladies and women, precious people through the years, who've struggled with conceiving and or maybe struggled and had miscarriages and her heart just goes out every time. I have a feeling because of her age that she was concerned that if we tell everybody, if we, if we go on Facebook and Twitter and we start posting pictures of the sonogram and then something happens, I think I was a reproach before. I have a feeling she in her humanness She was a human being being human, hid herself until they were sure. You know, and you can say, wow, that was little faith after her husband just got shazammed by Gabriel. Or you could say, you know what, that's probably what I would have done. That's just the reality of being human, folks. In case you haven't figured out, none of us have any of this figured out yet. We're still growing, learning, developing. We're still human beings being human on an ongoing basis. Amen? Amen. Aren't you thankful for the cross? Oh, better yet, aren't you thankful for the resurrection? So I'm asking you on this journey for the next couple of weeks after this, can we just enter into the humanity of who these people were? Have some grace for them? Because we may not have fared as well given the same circumstances. So can you bow your heads and close your eyes, I'll pray. Father, do help us to see and enter in to Elizabeth's plight, into Zacharias' fear and being overwrought and overwhelmed by the super entering into his natural, creating a supernatural moment. Father, would you give us grace as we engage all the fun festivities around Christmas, the ugly sweater parties, the food, the driving, the the Christmas presents, everything that will be involved, the music, everything that we love and makes us feel warm. But Lord, give us grace to also enter into the narrative, into the accounts to see that these are real people dealing with overwhelming otherworldly situations. Give us grace to see through their eyes. We honor you and we love you. In Jesus' name, everyone said Amen.